I am here with Caitlin Flanagan. Caitlin, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Thanks for having me again. So, um, I'll give that dog a moment. <laughs> so- my God, you sent someone over to kill my dog? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's, I'll sacrifice a lot for a podcast, but probably not so. your dog. Yeah. Okay, good. Thank you. So, Caitlin, so mm-hmm. now people have read the article that was embargoed yes. last time around that we couldn't talk about. So we should start there. I mean, first, I should say you and I have already spoken about your health before we obviously had before the last podcast. So we'll talk about it here as well. But I can't um, feign surprise at uh, the ordeal you've been going through. But let's take the article part first, because people obviously should just go read it. It's this really just wonderfully luminous and wise and witty, as I mean, this is sort of not a surprise with you ever, but it all came together on this topic, which is revealing, you know, both your current health concerns and the way in which they're compounded by the COVID pandemic. And it was just all, you know, interesting and beautiful and triggered an outpouring of appreciation on Twitter, which again was totally unsurprising given who you are and how many people I know love you because having done now a few podcasts with you, it's just absolutely obvious the degree to which you inspire love in an audience. Mm. And this may not be something that was obvious to you, but it was very obvious to me because I've been on the receiving end of it. So I guess my first question is, was there anything about the reception on Twitter and anywhere else you saw it that surprised you? The mo- the bigger feeling was embarrassment, mm. you know, because it's really intimate to open up your health issue. I mean, some people are really comfortable with it. And for me, it's not something obviously that I talk about. So it was the first wave of it was m- I, I just felt embarrassed to have laid all this, laid this heavy trip on people, or to feel that I was getting, I don't know, I I don't know, I just felt embarrassed. But then after about 24 hours, as always happens when you come out of the whatever closet you're in, when the minute you come out of it, you're like, oh, what an incredible relief, because I would be sort of tiptoeing around this many, many, many times in my work or in what was expected or, or hoped that I could do in terms of sort of making appearances places. So it just, it's always easier to just sit out there, just to have told the full, any, any relevant truth. Once people know it, then you're not hiding it anymore. And it had really gotten to the point that I felt like I was hiding my illness, mm. and that felt really bad. Well, let's uh, summarize it for people who haven't read it. What is your diagnosis? and perhaps just track through the stages of its presentation. All right, I'll tell everybody. I, I bet they'll be super bored and just fast forward over this part of the podcast. But for anybody who's interested. And I should say, whatever we're going to say now is uh, no substitute for reading your piece because oh, thank you. I want that read. So please go. Thank you. Well, so I was a young mom in the sweet spot of, I mean, I was 40, so not a young mom, but I had really young kids. I had twins who were four years old. And ahead, like behind my generation, I guess, I was just one of these girls who really, I didn't ever really want a career. I mean, I thought about teaching school, which I did, and I thought about writing, which I do. But I really wanted to be a mom. I really wanted to be, I wanted to be a housewife. I didn't know the dark side of it, but 
I just thought having kids, which will be the best part of my life. And then when they're little will be the super best part because my parents really hated having adolescent daughters. And I got, I kind of remembered how horrible that was for them, but it was no picnic for us either. But so everything was fine. Never been sick. Never thought of myself as sick. Nobody that I knew in our family, we don't have a lot of family history, but nobody had had cancer, breast cancer. And I went for this like routine checkup mammogram. And then it was like, well, can you just wait a few minutes? We need to get another film. Oh, sure. You know, I'm not really, my ears aren't like pricking up at this. And then, oh, he wants to have a sonogram. And two of my closest friends had had to have a sonogram after their mammograms and been totally fine. So I thought, I guess that's what happens when you're in your 40s, you get the sonogram. And then right then and there, he said, yeah, you have cancer. Mm. And, And he said, and we're doing a biopsy now. And he never asked me if he could do a bio. It's just, I've, just the things that happen to you in, in, when you're really heavily medicalized, mm. it's really hard to assert your will again or to even know. Because like, I remember lying there thinking, well, do and I have a say in this? But I didn't say anything. And then he said, like, this needle biopsy, a little bit painful. And, and then he kept saying, you have to prepare yourself. You have to prepare yourself. It was a Friday, so it would take, I don't know, till the next week early to get the results of the biopsy. I guess it was mm. Monday. But, and he just, he kept saying he didn't want me to drive. You know, I got dressed. He wanted me to see him. He wanted me to see him in his office, at which point he told me it was aggressive, very aggressive. And, and then he said, I don't want you to drive, and I should call your husband. And, and I just had this animal need to get as far away from him as I could and to contain the information as much as I could. I just thought I, something weird has happened in this building. I got to get out of here. I got to not have anybody know about it. And so I'm, I'm sure I shouldn't have driven. I'm sure I was in shock. And, and then my husband called. So the guy had called my husband. And I'm not blaming the guy at all. It's just sort of interesting that you start losing your, I don't know, it's very easy to lose your sense of who you really are in this. But I'm sure the guy was right to call my husband, but I got home safely. But, but wait, but before, before, you, <laughs> yeah. before we proceed, that does strike me as an anachronism. Yeah. That does seem like a throwback to the 50s where uh-huh. doctors sort of messaged around the woman to the man and in some cases didn't even tell the woman their actual diagnosis. Yeah. This seems like a slightly madman era doc you were seeing? Does it strike you Uh that way in in retrospect? Now, at the time, you're thinking of so many things. That's the last thing. I remember like, oh, God damn it, because my husband called on the cell phone and saying he knew. You know, I just heard from so-and-so. But I think the doctor, whom I had really gotten to know, he'd helped me with another problem earlier. I think he was freaked out. Hmm. And I think he was, I just think there was a lot of very human emotions going back and forth between Hmm. Him and me, and I blame him 0% for either of those acts. It just was part of the introduction to me of what it's like to have cancer, what it's like to have a really serious disease, where like suddenly you think you've seen things. Oh, I've had a cesarean section. I've been up against it. You know, you haven't been up against it till you get that really serious disease and mm. you're in a whole other world. And so I got, so I had, so we turned out stage three. And I got slammed with the, just this kind of chemo. I don't think they give it anymore. They've written books about it. It's called The Red Devil. I can't remember what it's, Taxotere maybe? It's a, just a horrible, horrible, horrible experience to go through that kind of chemo. But I had the chemotherapy. I had the 
surgery, the lumpectomy. I had the radiation by a very charming doctor who I later heard was kind of in the early stages of dementia, but I totally dug him. (laughs) So we got along great. (laughs) He was always telling me how beautiful I was. And I was like, this is the best doctor I've ever seen. Like I'm bald, I'm shriveled. I'm like, is that the first sign of dementia, a compliment? (laughs) I think so. I think so. I should have run for the hills. But anyways, I had a good remission. And I was just at that five-year point that's mm-hmm. kind of hyped up as a significant point. And, and I had a huge, devastating recurrence where it was in my liver mm-hmm. and my chest wall and my lungs. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm really going to die. I'm going to leave these kids, you know. And how old are your kids at that point? They are just about 10. Mm-hmm. And so on the one hand, I was like, okay, I got them through to double digits area, you know. But a kid really needs and wants his mom especially a boy, I think 13, 14, 15, up until then, they have a very deep need for a mom because they're so behind developmentally girls at that point, obviously girls and mothers, et cetera. But I've noticed that boys have a a deep need for mom until kind of that age. I was like, oh, I wish I'd gotten them there. Give me a little more about your life at that point. Now, are you still married to your boy's father? Yes. Now, okay, so, so yeah, I don't, I don't actually know the backstory. So you guys are still married, so. Oh, my gosh, yes. Okay. He's the cancer husband of the year. I mean, I, he just, you really, that's one of the things about everyone's had a crisis and everybody's had a tragedy, and that's where you really find out yeah. what people are made of, you know? Yeah, okay, well, I'm very happy about that. Yes. As is everyone listening. Yes. Were you, at this point, working full-time as a writer? Are you still are you at, at Harvard-Westlake School as a college no, counselor? What's no, your life no, like? No, no, no. No, I was, by then I had quit the school to become a mother. It took me a year and a half to get pregnant. Mm. I had the children. And what was it? What was I doing? Well, I had just started writing. I was just writing these articles at The Atlantic. I just started as a writer and they'd given me this chance to write. Right. And they'd liked what I'd written. So I'd written more and more. And then I had written one that caused this huge sensation. And I had been given this huge book deal. And I literally am getting the deal at the same week that I'm finding out, like, I'm so sick. This is back at the original diagnosis. So anyways, I got better. I published the book. There was a lot of press, a lot of negative press. But then a lot of people who really liked the book, but of course, I ignored them entirely as fools Hmm. and really trusted everybody who hated More dementia. Yes, exactly. So I had done that and I had a contract for the next book and I felt a lot of pressure about that. But, but yeah, I was out there in the culture. I was doing my thing that I do and getting more and more confident in it. And then it hit me again and it was so bad because, you know, you hear like in your lungs, you know, just Mm. like you see every, every bad, you guys are, I mean, you were a bit younger than I am, but we're kind of in the same range there where. We grew up with these like really horrible like TV movies of the week, and it would always be like, gosh, my elbow hurts. You've got elbow cancer. And then like the whole rest of the TV movie is the person like losing their hair and dying. Mm. So, so I thought this is so bad. And then a nurse in the private practice, I was in a really, sh- I, knew, I knew so little about cancer when, I, when we started all this that we just thought, you know, we asked people for names of practices. And it just, and it was a private practice, Cedar sinai excellent practice, excellent doctor. I love him to this day, but 
I, so I thought, oh, a private practice, that's got to be better than a public hospital or a teaching hospital. Obviously, you know, if you pay for some more for something or if your insurance, hmm. that's really the, the, the hero of this whole thing is I happen to have great insurance or my husband's job. But it turns out that you don't always have access to everything that you could possibly have access to if you're kind of down the line in a private practice. They're mm -hmm. kind of getting the first crack at medications that are being put out there, but they're not getting it the way the labs are. And when you're stage four, nobody's going to question what they offer you, you know. So a wonderful nurse took me aside at that private practice and risked his job by closing the door and saying, I think you should get a second opinion. Because I'd really trusted him. And I asked him, what should I do? And he said, I think you should get a second opinion. And that was profound. Maybe we should define stage four for people who haven't been through this on any level. So you originally had breast cancer, but now it has metastasized to your, mm -hmm. your lungs and liver and elsewhere. And so stage four is just the fact of having metastasized elsewhere in the body from the primary site. In most cancers, I think that's the way the staging works. It's certainly the way the staging works in breast cancer. Mm. Stage four in most cancers and in breast cancer just means it jumped the fire break. Right. That you had it contained within just one, you know, with the, within the breast or whatever the primary form of cancer was. And maybe it's even in the lymph node, which was in my case true when I first got it, so that you really get whomped with the chemo and all that to try to kill it from ever getting into the blood at all. Although it's in a little bit, starting to get a little bit. But when it breaks the fire, you know, jumps the fire break, as I say, that's when that cancer has wildly gone through the system and is attacking and, and finding locations to build itself in different parts of the body. And that's really serious. And in my mind, I'd always thought, and it used to be kind of a pretty soon death sentence, but someone else I know in Los Angeles, um, and if she's listening, she'll smile because she'll know who she is, who knows a lot about cancer. She just looked at me and said, you have to get closer to the science, you know, you have a particular kind of breast cancer. It is, you know, it is marked by the overexpression of a certain kind of genetic material. All of that work is doing being done at UCLA. And I know you have to wait longer to be seen and it's a hassle, but that's where you need to go. Because this guy, Dennis Slayman, you have her two new breast cancer. And he's the guy who's really hacked into that. So with this new drug, Herceptin, and then with a the whole armamentarium that followed that. So I, I got an appointment with one of these brilliant young oncologists in his lab, Sarah Hurwitz. And my last practice, it said, well, we're going to section your liver and take out the part of your liver with the cancer in it. And I was like, oh, that sounds really bad. And she was like, not at all. She had so many treatments. She said, I think this one will be the best. We'll give you six treatments, six, it's chemotherapy plus the Herceptin plus some other things that were from their armamentorium. And after three treatments, we'll give you a scan and see how it's going. And, uh, you know, you go for the scan after three treatments. That's terrifying. But the really terrifying part is going to find the result, you know, getting mm -hmm. the answer. And we had actually, we booked a night, actually, because her office is in Santa Monica, and we're far east of there. And we just thought, okay, we're going to book a night in a nice hotel, because if it's bad news, we'll need time to pull ourselves together before we see the kids. And if it's good news, we'll have a nice night in a nice hotel. Mm. So she walks in and said, your tumors are gone. Like mm. there's, there's still traces in the blood. We have to finish this. But 
they were gone and they stayed gone for 11 years of durable remission, 11 years. Hmm. And you just think, I mean, if it had been five years earlier, the thought that a woman with metastatic breast cancer, with lesions, you know, big enough to be biopsied in the OR, would be like not have a single one of them after three treatments of chemotherapy. That was much easier than my first chemotherapy. And then, and I was tiptoeing into, there's a cohort, a very small cohort of women in Dennis Slayman's sort of research and work who doctors are starting to tiptoe around calling them cured, which, you know, stage four cancer, there's no cure, et cetera, et cetera. We're never going to use that word. But they have gone so long with no remission of any kind, or no recurrence, rather, of Mm. any kind, that they're starting to wonder if they're actually cured of breast cancer. And I thought I was going to be in that group. And then my tumor numbers started going up. And sure enough, eventually a scan came about a year and a half ago, or almost two years ago, a year and a half ago, that I'm once again metastatic. So it's not good news to find out you have metastatic cancer, obviously. And it was in my spine that was really scary to me Mm. because I could just sort of see, not being a person who did well in biology, but was interested in biology, I could sort of see a tumor in a soft tissue kind of disappearing. It was harder for me to think of a tumor in bone disappearing. Mm. But yeah, they do. The lesion goes and then the bone starts to heal, even in someone who's like, what am I, 58? And I've had all this treatment. So my biggest issues really are I have from all of this treatment over all these years, I have a lot of health issues that come from the treatment, not from the cancer. And it's mostly these issues that now I've been taught before they were just my conditions, I guess, but now they're my underlying conditions. It's really bad if your worst condition becomes an underlying condition. Hmm. Then, you know, there's like someone just layered on another even worse condition. So just telling the public, to the extent that I have a public or any public of people who don't, haven't read me at all, that I have stage four cancer in a shortish essay was going to take a lot of unpacking anyway to explain that this tall subcategory that I've been in and maybe still am in that's very good news relative to bad news. And then trying to layer the COVID on over it. It was just very, it was like an exposure dream in a way, even though it's been a relief. Hmm. Hmm. Had you spoken about it or written about it at all? Because I I had sort of missed it, but I got the sense that you hadn't been completely in the closet with respect to having gone through the initial round of cancer. Well, in my first book, in the very epilogue, because I wrote it after I'd had this first bout of cancer, but was now back on my feet, Mm. I wrote about, oh, I had other, one other thing to tell you, I had cancer, you know, and this is what it was like. It was just a few pages. And then a few years after that, the Oprah magazine asked me to write something about it. And I foolishly agreed. And I just could. And something came out that was kind of, I don't know, I didn't do a good job with that. And then I thought, oh, never again will I write about cancer. And then I Why? What what was the uh, painful response to that? Oh, it wasn't the response. It was my feeling that I hadn't done a good job in the essay, that I hadn't. I didn't, I didn't like what I'd done. Mm. But the Oprah reading public is not a big overlap with the people who often read my... I don't know. It just was... The thing is that it's true that this is a very deathy situation. Mm. And, and so people who have no idea that you've 
been in a deathy situation, obviously respond thinking you're dying, yeah. which of course I am, as we all are. But then that kind of makes you look anew at your situation, like, oh my God, this is a really shocking, terrible situation. And then trying to resettle yourself, especially in a pandemic where you can't go and see the people, hmm. you can talk to them. But I guess, you know, whenever, whenever someone hears about it from the outside of me and my family or people who really know us, the reaction of the people tell me, yeah, I've been through a lot in 17 years. Mm. But when you're living your life, that's not ever how it feels, you know? It's just you live your life with whatever, you know, whatever hand of cards you have. Yeah, well, there's a lot in there that's interesting. First, I want to flag that uh, a deathy situation is a phrase I'm going to use now. Okay. <laughs> it's yours. I Take guess, it. It's yes, yours. <laughs> that's, that's one of the windfall profits of this episode of the podcast. Okay, uh, okay good. <laughs> You know, it is interesting the way in which talking about something reifies it just mm -hmm. based on the response you get to having spoken about it. And then you're dealing with the response. And, and often that feels like it concretizes a problem in a way that's not entirely representative of the experience of going through the problem, right? Like, right. I guess in microcosm, I've experienced this where I've, I mean, this is highly non analogous, but if you, I don't know if you have a fight with your spouse, right? And then a friend catches you right on the on the heels of that and they ask how you're doing and you say you just had a, you know, a fight with your spouse. You know, then the next time they talk to you, they're, they're asking you how it's going, you know, <laughs> in the marriage. You found a good lawyer yet, <laughs> right, right? Exactly. You're like, what are you talking about? Yeah, like who's going to keep the kids? <laughs> right. But that has no relation to what I, what you've actually gone through, right? And so I can imagine there can be a kind of amplification that happens when you're now you're dealing with this huge public response the other thing that's unique about cancer it seems is just the word the concept of this particular mm -hmm. illness being unlike any other and this this is still true but i'm sure it was even more true 17 years ago it's a scary word and it is the quintessence of a deathy situation mm -hmm. how has the concept of having cancer influence the experience of having it? In the beginning, it was, I remember thinking that first weekend, because I had the appointments Friday afternoon. And I remember the first weekend just thinking, I can't incorporate this information. I just felt like it was outside of me. And I had to somehow get it into me, you know, that it's just, you know, the cliche that this is something other people get. You know, we really, you know, Freud, we live by convincing ourselves we're invulnerable when we're very vulnerable. You know, somebody's got to get breast cancer. I, I couldn't take it in. I just could not take it in. And it does seem different from getting a diagnosis of heart disease or emphysema. or I mean, they're obviously bad things to get that kill people, but don't have this same charge. Do you think it's the result of the difference? or the very common difference in treatment around cancer, where you, chemotherapy and radiation are what you're now picturing and in, in many cases actually going to experience. And so this, this is the, the one disease you go to war with in a way that you don't with, say, heart disease. Yeah, I think that's a huge part of it, for sure. And I think that it is, again, so deathy. And that most of the... I always felt, and I used to say beforehand, you know, I, just kind of looking at you know, you always look at obituaries and you read them. And I remember thinking, 
Yeah, the three things I notice over and over are smoking, car accidents, and cancer. They just, I mean, it, wasn't, it was not a scientific study, <laughs> but I noticed that the things that I tended to be, like whenever I would be about to take off on an airplane, if I felt frightened at all, I would say, you know, it's not smoke, you're not smoking, you're not this and you're not that, you, you know, numbers are on your side. And it's just, you know, the war on cancer. Remember Nixon had that. And it was just that all of these other diseases were sort of falling by the wayside. And my mother told me, my sister's older than I am, so she was a baby in the 1950s. And my mother said, sitting with the baby in her lap in New York to go and get one of the first kids to get, be in the cohorts that got the polio vaccine. Hmm. My mother said she just thought, my baby's never going to have polio. My child's, like she just, it was like such a joyous, amazing, she couldn't wrap her mind around it because if you had been born in the 20s, you knew a lot of people, with kids who had gotten polio and a lot of parents whose lives had been just completely, you know, taken to a terrible place because their kid's getting polio. And so like all these other diseases seem to be falling by the wayside. And yet cancer has stayed with us for so long. Mm. And we know that it's the one that, and I've always been adamant that I'll not be in this situation, that you could be treated in a, such a way that made your life even worse for three months and then you die right after that. You know, that, so it's kind of like this thing that can potentially, the treatment can be so horrible and it might not work. So it's really kind of a heavy thing to think about. Yeah. Although no bravery, I can't tell you how many times I've been told in the last 72 hours, thank you to anybody who said that to me, and many times in my private life, how brave I am. Zero bravery, zero, zero bravery. Someone comes to you and they say, hey, got a choice here. You have a life-threatening disease. It can kill you in a few months, or we could try out this treatment. I'm like, I'll take the treatment. Let's give it, a, let's roll the dice door, here. Door number you know? two, yeah. I'll take door number two. I mean, maybe it's a zonk, but maybe, you know, maybe I'll get there. So a lot of things I've learned about cancer are like, number one, how you feel, total myth that like, you know, if you have a good attitude, you know, you're going to do better. It's a lot of studies on that. You can be a total bitch. You can be upset. You can cry every day. It's not going to, you know, you take the medicine, you take the chemotherapy. Sometimes it works for you. Sometimes it fails you and you have to try another one. You don't have to have a good attitude. You don't have to be right with God. You don't have to be, you know, it's nice to be nice to all your caregivers and you will be because they are so great, but you don't have to be nice to anybody. It's just the chemicals go in, the, the, there's a response. You know, I think probably there's probably more compliance with treatment in people who have a good attitude. I mean, I've never had a good attitude ever in my life. And look at me at 17 <laughs> years later. So, Wait a minute. Are you in the total bitch cohort of this study? <laughs> well, there have just been... I remember asking somebody who knew about this very early on who studies this. And I said, I just feel like I have to be so good because I, I'm in such a precarious situation. She said, oh, no, Caitlin. She says, I have seen the nicest people. And you probably know many very good people who died of cancer. And I'm like, well, that's really true. And then she said, trying to cheer me up, and I've known some real bitches who made it. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, somewhere between total bitch <laughs> and really nice person, but maybe more to the former there that it's irrelevant. It's just irrelevant what, obviously we know this, children mm. get cancer. Who's punishing them for that? You yeah. know, what have they done? Nothing. It's just... It's beyond our knowledge. It's, it's, I mean, it's not beyond our knowledge. It responds well. Some cancers respond well to certain kind of 
of chemotherapies. So, yeah. Uh. So, yeah. So, one of the aspects of your essay, which I know touched a lot of people, is the way in which you discuss reaching these various landmarks by reference to your sons, you know, their graduation from preschool and elementary school and reserving a hotel suite for their college graduation, which now is indefinitely postponed due to COVID, and just seeing the psychological suffering based on uncertainty, which again, we all, if we have our wits about us, should be experiencing in in some measure without a cancer diagnosis. We're all in a deathy situation, as you point out. We're not, you know, no one knows how long they're going to live, and therefore we could be magnifying the preciousness of time in this way anyway, and I think a fair amount of wisdom is dependent on taking death seriously before you've had any kind of diagnosis. But in your case, or in the case of anyone who gets cancer, it sharpens up the story considerably. And I know I know that moved me, and I'm sure it moved a lot of people. How has just thinking in terms of being a mom and seeing you know, various hypothetical dates out there on the calendar been the way in which this whole experience has been framed for you? Well, very helpful because it was just, I've got a mission and it's not a mission about my life. It's a mission about my children's lives. And to the extent children can have a, their mother, they want their mother. So I just, I will account in my life in two ways. By It just so happened that they were in preschool when I was diagnosed. And there was, you know, nowadays there are all these gradu- constantly graduations. But there was so there's this, you know, sweet little preschool graduation. And everybody was just so happy and bustling and taking their pictures. And I, you know, was in a, had no hair. I was in a headscarf. And I just remember thinking, this is going to be the only graduation you're going to get. Mm-hmm. And kindergarten rolls around. Well, they got a graduation and I'm still alive. And I made it a few more years and I thought, I'm going to make it to elementary school graduation. And then I had my recurrence and I thought, oh, I'm not going to get there. But I did well. I made it to elementary. The years pass. I'm like, I think I've got high school in the back. Yep, I got it to high school. And then I really thought this, I had made it to to college. And then I had this recurrence halfway through there being in college. But I got treatment. I did well. I like sat on the phone to make the very first reservation allowable for the graduation of this year at Kenyon, wonderful Kenyon College in Ohio at the Mount Vernon Grand. And then now because of COVID, you know, it's been canceled. So like in the movie version of this, I have to keep it getting canceled forever so that I can stay alive because mm-hmm. the graduation will be the end point. That's, right. That's your, your appointment in Samara. <laughs> exactly. My appointment in Gambier. Exactly. <laughs> but, you know, what you ask about death, two things, and how we hold life preciously. I remember like 25 years ago, do you remember when there was an Alaska airline flight that crashed maybe off the coast of Santa Barbara? Mm-hmm. It was a big crash full of people from LA. So it was very meaningful, touched a lot of people. And the weekend edition of the LA Times after that, they had a one pager where they, they went and asked different religious leaders, what meaning do you make of this? What meaning are your followers or does your faith hold for this event? And, you know, some people said there's you know, predetermination or there's mystery or life is, you know, God is, has plans that we don't see. 
But the last one was a Buddhist. And the Buddhist said, the cause of death is birth. And I was like, oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's really accurate. There's one thing we can say for sure, that once you're born, at some point, you're getting out of here. You know, mm. you're checking out. It's temporary. But the other thing about how we should be holding our lives in such a tender, close way all the time, I think that's kind of the lesson of the play Our Town by Thornton Wilder is that you can't. You know, it's kind of a corny play, but it's about a girl who kind of comes back to life and realizes how preciously she should be holding and everyone in the room should be holding each moment. But you just can't do it even after you've gotten the word about it. Mm. You if we lived life with the intensity of somebody who's looking at their kids after getting cancer diagnosis, we wouldn't be able to, to do anything. Yep. And to some extent, we're in such a precarious situation at all times that the only way to deal with how precarious it, it is is to almost pretend it's not precarious, mm -hmm. you know? I think there's one strand of that kind of wisdom in extremis that we can seize and, and maintain at, at its highest level. And I I'll grant you that we can't say goodbye to everyone like we're mounting the scaffold every time, you know, someone's just leaving to run an errand. Right? So, <laughs> so, there's, so there's, there's an intensity to uh, our awareness of our connectedness to other people that we can't quite maintain. But I think we can resolve to not suffer over trivial things the way yes. we would. It would be obvious we shouldn't be suffering over those things under the shadow of a cancer diagnosis. Right, right. Although, like, maybe someone is kind of a jerk to you and you have cancer. You don't have to necessarily think to yourself, I must see the humanity in this person mm -hmm. because it's like, I think you get to still know. You still get to have, I mean, it's very refreshing. Let me tell you, when you're in a deathy situation, the minute some small, trivial thing bothers you, you're like, oh, what a wonderful sensation, you know, to just be like annoyed <laughs> back, yeah. by something. Right. God, it's excellent. <laughs> okay, well, speaking of that, I, I wasn't sure I was going to bring this up, but you did have one response on Twitter that was just amazing. I mean, amazing to a Wasn't degree. it great? Oh, wasn't it God. the best thing ever for, it, it, it was for all Twitter kind? <laughs> yeah, it was glorious, but it was so perfectly crafted that it was one of those moments where you think, okay, this is a simulation we're living in and it's showing its seams because you know this is just too on the nose so you receive a tweet which has since been deleted i think you know oh has it yeah which is i guess maybe shows some scruple no no it shows anxiety yeah, it okay. shows anxiety <laughs> if if it had been a lauded tweet it would right. be the pinned tweet yeah it wasn't okay. based on any scruple I'm sure you're right about that, but I'm going to bend over backwards to be charitable okay, to this person. Good. But all right, I, I, and you don't even have a deathy situation. <laughs> I should be actually. I was charitable to this person, but carry on. You were actually. You were perfect in your response. No, I was even more perfect in my response, but I'll tell you at the end. Okay. It was private communication. Oh, good. Uh, so yeah, I want to hear everything. So anyway, this woman, Doctor Amita Kalichandran, who is a doctor and a I was surprised and doubly horrified to learn a, a New York Times writer mm -hmm. tweeted at you in response to your you know, cancer article in, in The Atlantic, yes, but open your eyes to the other Karens in the room. You're going to have to explain what Karens are to people. Uh, yes, but open your eyes to the other Karens in the room, like Caitlin Pacific. That's your Twitter handle. 
Her piece was slightly less overt and was likely edited down for tone. I read Caitlin's cancer story and sincerely hope she uses these last years of her life to learn to be a little bit less racist <laughs> and, <laughs> and anti-feminist. Okay, so isn't that the best thing ever? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I'm not saying it in like a badass way. It's just if we just needed any evidence that I'm sure if she met me, she wouldn't have said that, but that Twitter is just this kind of this place where you float all these trial balloons, you know? Mm. And and sometimes <laughs> and they're kind of meaningless. You know, they're just absolutely meaningless. And even as I saw it, I thought I knew there'd be a ghoulish response by, from somebody because you're always hearing about, you know, how in um, the murders in the, the elementary school in Connecticut, mm. Sandy Hook, yeah. and there's this whole branch of thinking that they were not killed and it was a simulation and parents can't even go to their children's graves, which even the, the phrase children's graves is so obscene. So you know that it's a big country with a lot of people, but I didn't think it would be somebody who is a physician, it writes for the New York Times occasionally, and the big path, <laughs> the other really horrible discovery was that she wrote, her first thing on her own Twitter site was, here's my first article for The Atlantic, yeah. which two oh, yeah. weeks ago she wrote for well, The Atlantic, and I was like, oh, is and, there And then also mindfulness. Any... Mindfulness is one of yes. her main passions, which was fantastic for my brain. I felt like the only thing I was going to find, like what else is we like, and she slept with your husband. You know, it's like, what, it's like, what else has this woman done to me? So that it just became kind of droll, you know? Right. There was nothing but drollery to be had. Well, so I, I'm less interested in singling her out for abuse than in flagging what was so interesting about seeing this tweet for me. First of all, my, obviously, I feel very protective of you and as did many people following you. And so the response from Twitter, you know, collectively was just analogous to, I mean, this will date me and, and you perhaps, but you're, you're, do you remember the film Silkwood with Meryl Streep? Of Street? course. Yeah, okay. Of so, course. You know, you're telling uh, me that that's yeah. not a current yeah. movie? Yeah. No, yeah, Snap yeah, out exactly. of it, Sam. <laughs> Half of our audience will have never heard of this on any level, but there's that scene where she's leaving the reactor and sets off the, the radiation alarm, right? And everything goes mm -hmm. into just emergency mode and she gets that a horrific shower with mm -hmm. the you know the bristle brushes and it's like mm. everyone following you on Twitter just had that reaction. It was just oh my god, this is the most toxic, despicable hot take possible. And people were fairly modulated in in how how much they slammed her. But I mean, the one thing that could be said in her defense is she couldn't have been referring to your cancer article for having been edited down for tone. She must have been referring to some other piece that she thought. Oh, oh, well, this is the thing. So I published a long piece about Meghan Markle about right. two months ago. And it was a, it was a very positive Meghan Markle. It was sort of saying explicitly, she's the best thing that ever happened to the royal family. You know, it's a multicultural Britain, and that's an all-white balcony up there. And really talked about what she had been through. And ultimately ultimately decided that, that, that the Queen of England is really an admirable person because she is someone who just, no matter what, has put her own desires last and what she perceives to be the country's desire first. And so at the time of that article, there was a perception that it was motivated by racial animus. 
And I was really interested and I was, would, I sort of engaged with people. I said, what is it that you find here that's racial animus? And they would say, you never said this, you never said this, you never said this, you said this, you said this, you said this. And I said, I did say all the things you thought I should say. I never said any of the things you thought I shouldn't have said. And then I started replying to the Twitters with the tweets about it with lines directly from the article itself so that they would see that I think that they just saw the article and that it was about Megan and they're very protective of Megan, which I certainly understood because when I was young, I was very protective of Princess Diana, who, uh, whatever. But so that had been kind of what, what she was responding to for sure was this two-month-old Meghan Markle piece. So a Karen and a Becky. I don't know what happened to Becky. I don't know if Karen killed Becky mm-hmm. and now Karen is ascendant or if Becky and Karen are like cousins and like kind of like Midge and Barbie right. where there's some slight distinction. But these are middle-aged white women who or maybe any age woman, maybe Karen is the middle-aged one and Becky's the younger sister. I don't know. But they're clueless white women whose casual expectation of privilege, which Mm. they wouldn't even think of as privilege in the world, comes at tremendous cost to other people and in particular to African-American women. And I think they have the people who believe in a Becky-Karen continuum. I would say they're absolutely right about that. I have no argument, have seen it many times. And I wrote 15 years ago, a long cover story. It was really the first story in a big national magazine that really said at length, the, what we think of as a women's movement as feminism has been tremendous gains for wealthy white women. And, and not only has it been far fewer gains for women of color and poor women, but in fact, white women have leveraged, you know, rich white women have, have successful professional white women have leveraged their gains on the exploitation of darker skinned women. So I'm really, I agree with them about a lot of that. Hmm. But she was dead wrong about this essay. And, yep. then, and then you would sort of think. But not only wrong about the essay, she seemed to be suggesting that, that the transgressions were all the more conspicuous for their absence, right? It had been likely edited yes, down for yes. tone. So now we have yes. to deal with the dog of racism that doesn't bark, right? It's incredible. And it, the thing that I think provokes such delight in people, certainly in me, is that this was a crystallization of the problem that we've, you know, we've been commenting on for now years. But the way in which the antecedent good intentions that get organized into wokeness become a kind of mental disorder, right? I mean, this is just such a bad take at this moment on you and your cancer story from a doctor. And again, the fact that she's a New York Times writer is, is I mean, she's, she's written, I don't know, six or seven pieces for them. I and mean, that's enough to call her a oh, New really? York Times writer. Mm-hmm, for sure. It compounds the horror of this. I mean, honestly, if she were just a doctor, I'm not sure I'd be inclined to even name her in our discussion here. But she has a journalistic responsibility not to be this clueless. Beyond the, the Hippocratic Oath of a doctor, you know, you could imagine a doctor who uh, just doesn't know how social media should work. But, you know, that's not the case here. Upon reading that, how much of your uh, brain's real estate was given over to being offended or annoyed and how much of it was just pure delight? I will be honest that in the moment, it was extremely painful. Hmm. Yeah, it was. And uh, 
I always remember this great routine NC's Ansari had where he said, you know, he scrolling through, you know, his tweets or whatever. And there was some young woman who said, I just love Aziz Ansari. And he said, she just assumed that, like, I would never find that tweet. And he's like, of course I found the tweet. That's all I do. I'm a comedian. I sit home looking at Twitter and then I go to work at night. So it's mm. sort of like a lot of times people tweet things out, assuming that the other person won't see them or maybe won't react to them as a human being in a sense. And it was such a shocking thing. It was so shocking. Well, the, well, fact, the, the fact that she's- The remaining years. And yeah. in the first place, it was a lie <laughs> to say, I sincerely hope she spends her remaining years. So the, con the, the idea is like, okay, she has decided that I am anti-feminist and a racist. And I'm going to spend mm. my few remaining years, which she's, she's yeah. you know, giving me a prognosis now. And then when I am a perfect vehicle of cleanliness, I can die. Like there won't even be like that I can bring this out to the world. You know, it's just that I must prepare for death by cleansing myself of sins that she says I have, but cannot prove that I have. Right, which were all the more evident by their absence in your article because you had been so successfully edited. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, the fact that she's a doctor, I mean, there's, there's something truly vile about a doctor playing the prognosis card in some way to dunk on you to make a social justice point that is obviously an error. I mean, it's just the fact that this is what's so fucking vile about this. The fact that the social justice triumphalism could co-opt the Hippocratic Oath, mm. the role of a doctor in talking responsibly about, about cancer, a cancer diagnosis and all of the suffering and uncertainty and sheer chaos that is in that bag when you open it. That's what I think everyone found so despicable. And I think rightly so. And so, I mean, she's deleted the tweet, you know, for reasons that are, I'm sure, self-serving. It would be nice mm -hmm. for her to actually apologize to you. I, let's pivot to that, because for me, it's interesting to consider how we repair our public conversation around moments like this, because, you know, it seems to me that there should be some apology adequate to this moment that you and anyone else could accept, right? It's like, for me, this is something I've referred to in previous conversations as the, the physics of apology. I'm, I think it's an interesting question to consider what constitutes and what should constitute an adequate apology. So you, you do something wrong, you say something stupid, you reveal intentions that were despicable, and you think better of it, and you actually want to repair the situation. And so that really the only instrument available is an apology. Mm -hmm. The closest I can get to it is, for an apology to be acceptable, it has to be clear what process you went through so that you're no longer the same person who mm -hmm. committed the, the original transgression. It's like, so for her to successfully apologize to you, the apology, it would have to reveal that she stands in the same place, or at least a relevantly similar place to her original, in this case, tweet, that you and everyone else who found it despicable do. Mm -hmm. She has to be able to say, right. to look back on what she did with more or less the same horror that everyone found appropriate in the moment the tweet was seen. 
and to apologize from that place. And it has to be intelligible how a person had that epiphany. Otherwise, people will think they're just faking it. They're just trying to get out of hot water, and it's not a sincere apology. So for, for an apology to be sincere, you have to be able to articulate or at least seemingly display a, a journey out from the place where you were the, the asshole who was so clueless as to say or do this wrong thing. And now you're the person who you're able to say, I can't believe I did that. That's just mortifying. I'm so sorry. I hope you accept my apology. It can only be credible if that journey is plausible. Mm -hmm. Well, I think a lot about apology. I've had to make a lot of apologies in my mm -hmm. life because I screw up a lot. Maybe everybody screws up to some extent. But this is for me when I make an apology. And number one, I have to own every part of the thing that was hurtful about what I did. Yeah. You know, so it's not about I, and it's not about a lot of explanation for why I would do that thing. It's just that thing must have hurt you in this way and this way and this way. And that is grievously wrong. And I am extremely sorry. And I really want to know if there's anything I can do to, in any level, repair this, you know. Right. And so that's to me, is a, a gold standard for apology. Now, the gold standard for forgiveness, there is no gold standard. I forgive her a thousand percent. And the reason for that isn't that she sent me what I consider a very not good apology in, the, in sort of the pantheon of apologies. The reason for that is I don't want to be changed to her in anger. Mm. You know, I have to, if I don't release her in a complete forgiveness so that I can look forward, you know, hey, she's 31, she's learning, she's trying to get her hustle on with this website. You know, if I don't turn away from that and just say forgiven and mean it, even though I can laugh at how cruel it was and how much it hurt me, then she'll be, I'll be chained to her forever. And I can't even really remember her name right now. So <laughs> I totally, really legitimately forgive her. Right. Oh, so, so I missed that part. Maybe perhaps you telegraphed that in the last few minutes. Did, did she send you an apology that was. So I looked back on it. The, I looked back on at the Twitter that day and. And somebody said that was really cruel. And she said, I've apologized privately. And I, that was my only second tweet. It's like, I didn't see any apology. And she said, it was sent out at 5.28 p.m. As though like I was <laughs> maligning her about her apology and she had the receipt for it. Right. But then I found it. She'd sent it to my, uh, my work email. Mm -hmm. And it was a super long. It started with this that in the sentence. Well, first place, as an editor told me, and I was like, you're really right about that. She's like, why a private apology for a public wrong? Yeah, that, that's, that's the first something, mistake. Yeah, she said something really terrible about you in public, but you didn't apologize for it in public. You're, you're sneaking it around this age. But I kind of scanned it. It was more upsetting to me in many ways. And then I thought, hold on. There's a really good game I rarely play, and I can always, but it's always a good game to play, which is like, what if I were an incredibly evolved good person, right, which yeah. I'm not? Yes, what would <laughs> the Buddha would do? An, yeah. Exactly. They would for, accept the apology and not be lying about it. They would accept that there, the, there was some apologetic intention. And then my brilliant son, Patrick, whose picture was in that, the article you're talking about, his picture when he was a little boy the day before I got cancer mm. is in there. He said, and then you would tell her to stay safe in this 
pandemic. And I'm like, oh, Patrick, that's the killer right attitude. Can I have it? And then I had to think through that several different ways. And I was like, yeah, I hope she stays safe. You know, she's a young woman. She's a physician. She's she did something really hurtful. I don't have, see any evidence that she's I don't know. I just hope she does well. And I do forgive her completely. Mm. Now, forgiveness doesn't mean that you're open to be hurt by someone again. You know, you don't make yourself vulnerable. You're not kumbaya. We're not going out for high tea anytime soon ever. But it just means I'm not chained to her anymore. I got a lot of other enemies to keep chained tightly yeah, to my body. Yeah, well, you, <laughs> you, you think out loud uh, rather freely, and it, that's what makes you such a delightful interlocutor. And so uh, no doubt you have provoked people to send tweets of this sort in the past. Never this bad. I've had some bad tweets sent to my way. I've had some horrible reviews. No one has ever said, I hope she spends her remaining years atoning for sins she doesn't have. <laughs> no one's gone that far. Yeah, well, I think we all hope that the good doctor spends the remaining years of her life learning to be less sanctimonious. I think that would be a good use of it. You know she's going to be writing. We will, like, in two days, see her New York Times piece about how horrible we are to have had this discussion. So Yeah, well, I'm, try I'm trying to have it in a way that I will not feel the need to apologize for. I mean, I, I, again, I'm not, I'm holding right. her. So even on the heels of a bad apology, I think there would actually be a way for her to adequately apologize. Can you apologize for a bad apology? Can you pull yourself up by the final bootstrap here and get back to zero? I mean, can you imagine I, that conversation? I would not have had that level of self-knowledge when I was her age. I'm 58. But what if we could get her on the line right now and <laughs> have a conversation? Do you, do you think there's any way that conversation would go well? It would converge on a full reboot of basic human decency and we could all be friends? I would start it with someone much higher up on the feeding chain of my enemies than this mm. one. I don't see any need to have any, any, you know, I really think that, you know, maybe you need to be a, a lot more deathy to really, really understand how apology and forgiveness works and to really understand that, you know, forgiveness releases you and you don't have to do, you know, you'll see these people who like forgive the killers of a loved one. Yeah. I'm, I'm never going to, you know, you can spare me from cancer for 500 years. I don't think that's going to be happening. But I can free myself from her, but I don't want to have, but part of it is, what I'm trying to say is, just because you've forgiven someone doesn't mean it's a love-in. And it certainly doesn't mean, as I always tell people who are in any kind of abusive relationship, it doesn't mean you let the abuser back into your life if they haven't shown any possible sign of having changed, right. you know? You forgive them, but you keep, your, you keep your fence closed to them. Yeah, you're talking about there's two layers of forgiveness here or, or two forms. I mean, so, so you can forgive somebody who is actually unrepentant, who's still a, even in the extreme case, a danger to you mm -hmm. without losing your awareness of the danger they represent. You want nothing more to do with them, but you can forgive them in some deeper, right. whether the Christian model summarizes it or the buddhist what you can notice is to fail to forgive is to grasp some kind of hot coal of mm -hmm. suffering which you actually can release on your side i mean you, there's no yes, there's no totally. reason to be carrying this person around in your mind with your hatred of them or your your anger or resentment so you can perform that 
miracle on your side, all the while leaving this person out there in the real world completely unchanged. But what's interesting for me is the warranted forgiveness based on that person's true apology. I would love to fully understand what makes it possible for someone who has really wronged another person to become aware of it and apologize, and for that apology to be so sincere and real such that genuine friendship between those two people is you know, thereafter possible. That's the thing we, we need more of in our world. We also need the former. We need people just to be able to put down the burden of their reaction to assholes. But Well, I often talk to young women about, because some of our, the best minds of our generation are of their generation, some of the best minds of the generation that's young now that are female, the female half of it, they just feel for reasons to protect themselves, they can't go on any kind of a public platform such as Twitter because these hideous, hideous things that flow back to them mm. are so poisonous. And boy, once, you, once it gets gendered, once you have really angry anonymous men saying things to, very, to young, very public women, it gets into a place far, far, far beyond what this was about. And so I'm always telling them, don't worry about that. Pay no attention. It's nothing. It's pixels. It's somebody else on the other side who's just, you know, you're as remote to them as like Richard Nixon, who's dead and gone. You're just like a public figure. They don't think if they're not having any kind of personal communication with you, just ignore it. So I tried to live into the advice that I always give young women, which is just, this had a little more bite, as I say, because she publishes where I publish. And because mm. she like, yeah. I said, I have children, I want to live for their graduation. And she told me to like, I wish should use my remaining years yeah. atoning for a, a sin that she's divined that I have, but that was edited out. So forget your children, just spend the free hours becoming less racist and less anti-feminist. Yes. That's the project. And if she thought that the Atlantic would public, I mean, the Atlantic began, it was founded by abolitionists that thought that they would be, oh, we have this racist writer, let's just lightly edit her for tone, <laughs> is absurd. There was another thing I noticed. I, I don't know if this is, uh, I've thought about this before. I don't know if, I don't think we've spoken about it. This doctor's obviously very focused on the problem of privilege. And, you know, so I looked at her Twitter feed after I saw this tweet, and there's just a lot of stuff about privilege and wokeness, you know, more or less wall to wall. But I, I couldn't help but notice that she's a very attractive woman, right? And mm -hmm. this is a form of privilege that few of us are talking about, but it's, it is as real as privilege gets. There's just being a beautiful woman or a very handsome man is not nothing in this world. Mm -mm. And I guess it sort of compounds the irony here, but it struck me as a final layer of a lack of awareness. I mean, if you look like Padma Lakshmi and you're going on and on about privilege, there's a ridiculousness to the project. When you think of the advantages that just effortlessly flow to people who are very attractive in our culture, you have to at least take the wokeness game a little more lightly than you would otherwise. How do you think of that form of privilege in our society? Well, first place, 
if there's anything in the world she is not unaware of, it would be her beauty, I would say, just the way she displays herself, rightly so, beautiful young woman. There's a wonderful English expression that at age 50, you get the face you deserved, you know, like that it is going through life as a beautiful or pretty or attractive young woman. Oh, man, a lot of doors fly open and and you're intensely aware that there's it's going to stop. But then you kind of charter over into, you know, confused older, older lady and they open the doors, too. So um, maybe it's not as dire. But for sure, I would say more to the point is that she's Canadian and she's presenting herself as a sufferer of the r- ancient wrongs against people of color in this nation, which is just a very odd. Mm, yeah, I missed that point. Odd part of it. But I don't even want to. Let's not talk about her anymore. I don't want to think about it. Maybe she's a Russian bot. Maybe we just have been (laughs) successfully trolled. Well, only a Russian bot could troll the uh, op-ed section of the New York Times. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's just a matter of time. Yeah. Okay, well, not to put too fine a point on it, but um, the goal of this post-mortem Amita was not to be mean-spirited, but to try to extract whatever lessons can be found in, in... yet another amazing installment of social media in the midst of the deathy situation we call life. Right. Oh, that's a good title for a book. Kind of a cheesy yeah. book, but one I wish yeah. I could write and make a fortune on because it sounds like something I would buy. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so before we move on to uh, even more superficial topics okay. uh, than Twitter, so what is your understanding of, of your prognosis now and just I mean, one of the points of your article was the way in which this COVID pandemic has compounded the the hassle, among other things, of just dealing with ongoing cancer treatment. Give us, uh, you know, a picture of your current situation, and these are some of the implications of of the pandemic that people aren't really thinking about. I mean, we we think about elective procedures not being done, but an elective procedure is a cancer scan, or even in some cases, mm-hmm. a cancer surgery. Mm-hmm. Bring us up to the moment with your, your health. Well, part of having cancer at this stage is that you have to get a lot of PET CT scans because you have to find out if the treatment you're on is working and if it has the cancer stable or if the cancer is growing during in the presence of this treatment, meaning you have to get a different treatment. You have to change your treatment. So, and then because of very long story with these other cancer treatments I've had in the past, they have given me certain other problems that have to be checked a lot that I gained because I was treated for cancer. So I should have really had a PET CT scan mm, probably a month ago, and I will have it this month on the 27th because they're really trying to push anything they can do. I don't know really in the beginning if it was because they felt that the hospitals out here in California would be overrun as they are have been in New York City, or if they just wanted patients that have these underlying conditions to stay out of hospitals that are so full of every kind of thing floating around, could be COVID as well, as much as possible. I don't know. But at a certain point, you have to get your scans. So I'll go there. And then I have to go a lot to get my infusions. So with that, it's just a lot of like they call you first and ask you the questions and then you're out in the uh, about symptoms. Do you have any of the symptoms? No. 
And I would love to have a test for this thing because I wonder if in early January I might have kind of been exposed to it because I was a bit sick in early January. And so was my husband and he'd just come back from New York. But, you know, there's the beautiful, perfect available tests are not as perfectly beautifully available as we've been led to believe. But anyways, then they take your temperature and then finally they let you in to the infusion space. And you're kind of like, ah, I've made it, you know, (laughs) to this horrible place where I get treated for cancer. But everyone there is really nice. So there's a lot of just things you have to jump over. And I'm not parking down in the basement because I don't want to have more people in my car, but I want to go down there to give a tip to the guys I know. So it's all, it's all, it's all a little bit challenging, Mm. I'll admit. But a lot of people are in a lot worse, a lot worse situation. So. And are you still taking Herceptin or has it moved on to other drugs? Is it it still Herceptin? Now I take Herceptin. Because obviously it failed me because I'd been on Herceptin every three weeks for 11 years. Mm. So it, it started to, I started to, the cancer assert itself more strongly against it. But I still get it in combination with this other drug that's now in the armamentorium called Progetta. And then with an injection of huge horse, horse-sized injections of something else every three weeks. The first one that, the thing is I'll be on treatment the rest of my life mm. until or unless something better comes along or more definitively curative. So the first one that I tried was doing a good job, but I, I just couldn't imagine living my life on it. I was just too sick from it. Right. I mean, I was nowhere near as sick as I was on actually being on chemo. And the new, it was a chemo, but it was this smart bomb kind of chemo where it goes through your body and it only explodes inside a cancer cell, which is wonderful, but it does still, so you don't lose your hair or anything, but it does still leave, left me really tired and kind of sick. Mm. So then I switched up to this new treatment. So there's a lot, there's a lot in the armamentorium and it just goes to show when you throw a whole lot of money and a whole lot of science at one very particular problem, you start getting some answers to it. You know, it's science is real, I guess. Mm. Well, needless to say, um, vast numbers of people love you who haven't even met you because you're spirit comes through so clearly in your voice, both on the page and in conversation. So I think not meeting me is probably inducive to <laughs> This could be the sweet spot. Yeah. Just, <laughs> just enough, Caitlin. <laughs> exactly. This is my next book, your next book. <laughs> okay. So pivoting to, um, in some ways, these are equally existential topics because we're, we're talking about the fate of global civilization here when we're talking about politics at the moment. But in our last podcast, you and I said that I think we called out the New York Times, but in general, journalists would have to deal with the Tara Reid scandal with Biden because the allegations of hypocrisy and double standards were just too poignant or would prove to be. And then it only took 24 hours, I think. I know. And then the New York Times did a fairly deep dive into it. I'll just be interested to get your take on it. How, How has the left or how has has journalism in general, you know, real journalism, the New York Times, acquitted itself thus far here, and and what does it portend? Well, you know, the Times, you know, clearly, as they said, um, and clearly there was evidence of it. They'd been working on the piece for a while. They wanted to get, uh, you know, a thorough piece, and they did bring up some, you know, the the Me Too movement. You know, it never had a manifesto which is a really good thing for a radical movement because you can change it on the fly. And, but to the extent that it did, there was a notion that, you know, in the old days, you would say, 
okay, maybe this one woman got hurt by this man at some point, but look at his career. You can't damage him. He's got a career. He's got a family. He's got this and that. Who's this girl crawling out from nowhere saying he Mm. hurt her sexually a long time ago? And I think part of the movement was the idea that, you know, to look at the Blasey Ford thing, I know controversial, but a thing that for him and his friend, if indeed it happened, I happen to believe it did, just for no other reason that that's my gut sense, but so it's not nothing important there or significant. But for him and his buddy, that was five minutes of cracking each other up and then racing down the stairs and maybe being so drunk they literally didn't remember it. Hmm. But for the girl, it's a lifetime event. You know, it's a lifetime event. And, and so that was a powerful, powerful concept never before really brought to the fore that the past sexual harm that a man did to a girl that was once seen of, oh, that was his part of maturing, you know? And, you know, when I was a child, I spake as a child. And you often hear men saying, boy, I'm glad this movement didn't exist when I, that when I was young or, or when I was sexually active in, in ways that I now regret. Because I think there's a lot of men who have things in their past where they think to themselves, wow, I, I really hurt that girl. I wonder, if, I wonder if that was as hurtful to her as some of these other women are saying. So now we've gotten this much. So now we're in a real crisis. Because on the one hand, I think you and I are agreed, we can't do Trump again. <laughs> we, we didn't think we could do Trump the first time. But Trump too, the return will, could be the death of us, you mm. know? And uh, although just seeing that his numbers, his polling went up, based on his handling of the pandemic, who, who knows, you know, yeah. we may be not really, you know, my kinsman Major Molina, we may not know our, our own people, but, or people we think of as fellow Americans, I just can't understand that. But so it's a very, it is a very crucial election. Even if he didn't do any more bad things, I think, you know, God, this would have been a great time for an Obama type of figure, someone who had the ability to at least rhetorically hold us together. Yeah. And, and he has zero ability, he has zero desire, but zero ability to do anything like that. So on the one hand, we got to get rid of him. On the other hand, nothing short of the occult can explain choosing Joe Biden as our guy. There's no rational thought that would say that this elderly guy not as sharp maybe as even my radiologist who scorched my lungs 17 years ago, maybe, maybe not, who has had a long, bad optics around women, starting with Anita Hill Hmm. and starting with an awful lot of pictures of just like touchy, touchy. And then it's always like, well, I grew up in an Irish Catholic touchy family. We're not touchy. The <laughs> Irish Catholics, like we invented social distancing. Yeah, do, do, you have you standing, do you have standing as a Flanagan to, to say that? <laughs> I think I could truly say generations of the old sod can tell you we're not a touchy group. So I cannot imagine a worse candidate. And, and I have a lot of, so I'm torn. I really have respect for the people in the left who are taking this seriously because they brought up a very important issue. But have have we taken it seriously? It seems to me that we see it a lot of places compared to before the Me Too movement. She would have been a nuts and sluts defense, and and it's interesting to see the women coming to stand up for Joe Biden. This is exactly what Gloria Steinem did 
20 something years ago with Bill Clinton, when all the absolutely true charges against him with Paula Jones and others. And then Lewinsky came up. She wrote an op ed. I don't blame him at all. Maybe he needs sex therapy. But, you know, if anything, it's his burden, not the women's burden. And I don't believe these women. And she had to recant that almost immediately. But there's in the Democratic Party and the old machinery deeply in it in kind of a not Tammany Hall way, but in a kind of deep soldiers marching in the same way. They are women who said they're feminists and that's what they hold out. What they're really doing is protecting the machine of the system itself. So I think this guy was a crappy choice without this woman having come forward. And boy, is she ringing every single bell. You know, she has so much more proof than Christine Blasey Ford had. Mm. And it's of a far more serious accusation, you know, and... What do you do with the fact that it's the lone accusation of this kind? It just seems so out of character, given that there's just nothing else like it appearing. I mean, this is, I just did a podcast with Andrew Yang, and, and his intuition here was, you know, if, if he were really this kind of guy, there'd be more of this kind of stuff. Well, a person doesn't just do this sort of thing once. I mean, this was a straight up criminal sexual assault, really. This is not, this is not just getting too close or touching somebody's hair. Does that knock your intuitions around at all? Not at all. Not at all. First place, the nature of what he did and when he is said to have done it in the early 90s, women didn't want to go out and talk about the actual act that was done against them. They were humiliated by that. They didn't want to describe it in precise terms. Mm. And the last thing you want to do a lot of times is go forward and, and describing this. And in those days, you would have been called you know, a nut and or a slut. And there would be nothing, nothing good could happen to you except trying to forget about it. And that's why you get these things that are seen as discrediting where a woman will say, someone did something to me in the office in this particular year. And the, the comeback is, but for the next three years, you were happily there. Yeah, she was just trying to pretend that didn't happen mm. for a long time. So that does not discredit the accuser. You know, before Me Too, I would have said, oh, come on, that's a long time ago. But now I think Me Too did open my eyes that there are a lot of women who have been hurt in all sorts of ways sexually by men, maybe in the past, maybe threw them off their own careers for, you know, five years, 10 years. And she has all the things. And Dean Baquet said that in that contentious interview with Ben Smith, who's my hero, who's now the media correspondent at The Times. The Times kind of established in the height of Me Too that an important thing to them was that contemporaneous reporting by the woman that, you know, mm -hmm. that's often seen in the law that goes a long way. But the New York Times really established it de facto by the, the attention they gave to certain claims against people in the Trump administration or Trump himself, that if there were contemporaneous reports, that counts for a lot. And there are more and more and more coming to the surface. So I think we are absolutely in a bad spot here. I don't think that, you know, when, I, when Trump was elected, I thought we're going to have an amazing candidate next time because we had Hillary and a lot of people hate Hillary, which is not a good idea for a candidate. But instead, we've got someone from the same machine 
as she has emerged from. But instead of potentially her being someone who was complicit in a man doing something to a woman, he is perhaps the man who did something to a woman. It really is depressing. I, I, I got to think there's the path out of hypocrisy that I've taken here could be taken more widely. But I, I, I noticed that someone wrote a, a, a New York Times op-ed, which sort of made the point I made in our last podcast, which is she even made it more strongly because she said, I believe Tara Reid and I'm still voting for Biden. Mm. I have not been in a position to say that I believe or disbelieve Tara Reid. I, I, I'm just agnostic. But I did say in our last podcast, even if I believed Tara Reid, it's still a clear choice in November. It's just there's almost nothing Biden could be guilty of that would disqualify him in an election against Trump, given what an existential danger I perceive Trump to be. This sounds hyperbolic, but it really isn't. I mean, even if he is a murderer, I'm confident that he will be a better president than Trump. Oh, I wish he could be competent enough to commit a murder. I mean, that would be like extra. I would put two bumper stickers instead of one on my car. The ways in which Trump is terrible are not the ways in which Biden, even if he's a, you know, a sexual assaulter, is terrible, right? I mean, we we know enough about the way he, he is very likely to govern and the kinds of professionals he's likely to pull into his orbit and the deference he's likely to have for real experts about real problems, that he's, he is the anti-Trump, even if he is deranged in this surprising way, or was years ago, and we can't assure ourselves that these allegations are false. So I, I don't actually see that to be a hypocritical position. I mean, this is really just a straight-up lesser of two evils argument. And I mean, unless we're going to replace him, which if we had some mechanism by which we could credibly replace him at the 11th hour, well, then, you know, that's worth talking about. But given a choice between him and Trump, it, it really still seems like it is a, an idiot-proof choice. Right. But I think within that decision, which obviously I'm making as well, because obviously I'm going to be voting for Biden, and even though I'm a Californian, I'm definitely going to vote for him because now we're looking at these popular numbers. But here's what I would say to this. You know, After Hillary lost, there was this pathetic, hideous, endless keening of the women saying, what do I tell my daughters? What do we tell our daughters? And I always said to that, you know, why don't you tell them what apparently no one told Hillary Hillary Rodham at Yale Law School, which is there's this thing called the Electoral College and the popular vote doesn't matter. And this is how it works. And it may be horrible. I thought it was horrible since eighth grade that we have an Electoral College, although there are good arguments that I guess can be made for it. But so there was so much lamentation about what do I tell our daughters? We tell our daughters when there was a good answer to it. Yeah, she lost the election. She should have gone to Michigan. People hated her. There was Russian, whatever. (laughs) There are a lot of reasons. There are a lot of things that daughters could handle. With this time, what do you tell our daughters when we decided as the good party, the party of all the things that we want to stand for as Democrats, that we decided a woman's sexual assault didn't matter to us enough to throw the guy out. What do we tell them then? Then we tell well, our be, daughters. Well, because he's, yeah. running, he's running against somebody who has at least right. 19 even more credible allegations. Right. But how can he be someone that we are going to look up to and respect and see as worthy of the office of the president? 
And to just see people, you know, you're not going to see rallies where people are holding their nose and going, at least he's not Trump, which, by mm. the way, was the entire reason Hillary was going to win was because she wasn't Trump. You know, it's not enough. You know, all these polls experts are saying it's the hatred that really gets people out. And if I've listened to 8,000 years worth of Oprah, I've learned one thing, which is that people are more motivated by things they're attracted to. They move closely toward things that are appealing to them. And, and that's what really gets the, the people in the finish line of showing up at the, the polls. But I just think for young girls and women, we as a Democratic Party will be saying, and I will de facto be the one of them who's saying it because I'm going to be voting for Biden, God love him, bless him and keep him, that, yeah, it seems like he did something really, there's really good evidence that he did something really hideous to a woman. She tried to bring it up, to complain about it, but no one listened to her then and no one listens to her now. And I think that's really sad. And what it is, just as you're saying, the reality is the sexual safety of women is always less important than something. So the reality is the sexual safety of women who work in the offices of men like this is less important than getting men like right. this elected when they are opposing another man. And it's, you know, and the thing about sexual violence, it's either first or it's last is what I found in terms of what people care about. For, for me, no, it, it could just be second and the calculus runs through. It's like it's second to the project of keeping a global civilization from completely unraveling. If we double down on Trump, I basically think it's the end of American influence in the world. And we're basically saying, oh, oh yeah, we're telling the entire world to go fuck itself. And it's just a masochistic self-immolation of a sort that it'll take a full generation to recover from. And we have such enormous problems to solve globally. Before we had a pandemic, we had enormous problems to solve globally. The fact that we would promote this ignoramus twice and give him, despite the fact that American power is waning, you know, it's now that you can just see the air rushing out of the balloon by the hour, but still it's one of the most important and powerful jobs on earth to run this country. And the fact that we would give it to him again, knowing exactly who he is, as though we didn't know it the first time around, it just, it would be disastrous. How do we really, you and I, obviously, obviously we're going to vote for Biden. And obviously we're going to tell everyone why, and it's going to be because of Trump. But how do we become enthusiastic supporters of Biden the person? Yeah, I don't think we need to be. I mean, I, I just think it's, it is just a, a, a ripcord that we were going to pull and hope the parachute opens. That's my feeling. Like, I, I, don't, I don't have to believe anything else about the guy to feel that that's the right move. And again, I, I, I don't think it, this entails hypocrisy, and I don't think it entails not taking the Me Too allegations as seriously as they can be taken. I mean, again, there's, there's some legitimate concern about taking one person's word for something with really nothing else corroborating it. This was true in the Kavanaugh case, and it's true in the Biden case, and it's true in, mm -hmm. in every case. And, and there is a, there's a moral force to a pattern of behavior that you just don't get with a one-off allegation. Because we do know there are, there are some number of crazy people out there who will make 
crazy allegations for whatever reason. And I mean, you know, and stranger still, there are people who will make false confessions, right? You know, every time there's some horrendous crime, some number of people line up to confess (laughs) that they they committed it and they, they have no involvement, right? They're just deranged. But when you get, you know, 19 women coming forward claiming that a person assaulted them in some way, and then you get this buffoon incriminating himself by bragging that he gropes women whenever he wants. Mm-hmm. The picture is so complete as to you know, his character and, and the effect he has on other people. It's just, then I find it impossible to doubt. I mean, then, you know, then believe all women, you know, suddenly makes a lot of sense. But when you're talking about one person, I, there's still some room for uncertainty here where I, it's hard to know how to proceed when you're talking about flipping a switch that cancels someone's career for all time or what you know you're then committed to treating someone like a sexual assaulter or or you know rapist based on the testimony of one person that comes decades after the fact agreed agreed although i've rarely met a woman my age i'm 58 who couldn't name a man who did something wrong to her sexually at some point in her life and i think this question again the Democratic Party, I think, again, just as kind of coming out of the closet about my having this cancer has been very liberating. I think the Democratic Party needs to come out of, out of the closet and say, yes, there's a lot of reasons to believe Tara Reid. Right. But right now, and in fact, given our support of Me Too, you know, I'm sure Kirsten Gillibrand believes her. <sighs> Don't get me started. But we had to put the woman second to the nation. We right. had to put this woman's experience of sexual violence second to the nation. And so you need to understand that, daughter, that a lot of things can be redressed for women. But one thing is, when there's something more important than a, a cr- somewhat credible story of sexual assault, we're going to have to go with the more important thing. And that's just, and Sam, I just want to say, that's what being a woman is. At the end of the day, we get on a subway if we're young and someone grabs part of our body and there's nothing to be done. You know, that's just, and there was this brief moment, the most radical feminist moment, I think, of all time when women around the world said, we're going to describe ourselves to one another as a class in a Marxist sense, and we are not going to put up with it at all. Everything stops now. And we're going to take care of this problem. Obviously, that was a wonderful idea that is, was not and is not practical. And we're sort of stuck with it. We're stuck with the fact that a lot of, a lot of things that women say happened to them, maybe they actually did happen to them, but we have to allow it because there's something more important than an individual woman's experience. Mm-hmm. I think if the attitude is, if I, I saw that same op-ed and now I don't know who wrote it either. But I think that if the person and any individual is going to say, I believe Tara Reid, it's a really hard spot because then you can't be like Biden forever, which I have put a couple of tweets out there because I'm so eager to get rid of Trump. And then I'm like, well, hold on, Kate, you know, what do you believe? What I believe is there are a lot of things in this world more important than a woman who got sexually violated in that way. And that's just a horrible irreducible truth about being female in this world. Trump, again, Trump always wins, which is so terrible. But now 
because his moral standard is so low, we've been forced to lower ours, not beneath his, certainly, but beneath what we would consider to be an ideal, you know? Well, I, I think that the thing to really be lamented is that it obviously didn't have to be this way. I mean, we, so we're, we're, we have a forced choice now, or it would seem we have a forced choice now between Biden and Trump, uh, Biden, Biden and Trump, <laughs> <laughs> between Biden and Trump. I'm now tempted to call him Chump more and more. I can't believe that hasn't come up yet. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. Trademark it. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it is just insane that we've gotten ourselves into this situation and we could have picked someone else. I guess, is there any possible path to swap in someone in for him at this point? Or is that just going to make our politics look so illegitimate that it would be the final torpedoing of the Democratic Party? I mean, is, is anyone talking about some way in which it might not I, be Biden? I don't know. I don't know how the convention works. You know, you always hear about these smoke-filled rooms in the old days and how it was all sort of duked out behind cameras. I don't know if there's some provision in the way that the, the rules of the convention are organized. I'm sure there are people who are yelling at their, their radios right now because they know exactly how, or should I say mm. their computers? I don't know mm. how they get these things. But I don't know. And it would certainly, and if there were, you're absolutely right, it would look so just amateurish if in the most important election of all time, we swap the person out at the ninth mm -hmm. hour or even the 10th hour. So I don't know. I don't know. I guess we shouldn't even, that's another thing I think, Sam, is like, should we even be having conversations like this in open? Like, should we just be only saying good things about Biden? Like, is that what we need to be doing? Yeah. Well, my intuitions are that honesty is is a tonic in almost every situation. And, and here, it's. I, I think we need to perform a, a credible exorcism on the charges of hypocrisy and double standards. And, you know, you pretend to care about me too, but when it comes time to vote, you obviously don't care. It's like, no, you, you can care a tremendous amount about it. You can care more about it than almost anything. But look who's on the other side of this political equation. We've got me too squared on one side with Trump. So even if that's all you cared about, I think you have to prefer Biden to Trump. But then it kind of puts us into that old, like, you just imagine like an embittered older woman of like our mother's generation. Like, ah, all men are bastards. Just try to find the least bastardy one. Like this kind of idea that like it, it's, it goes with the territory that the men are going to do some raping, you know, you're gonna, and it, the most powerful men will do more of it because they have more access to it. And given that all men are bastards, we choose the less bad of the two. You know, it's just sad. I mean, the whole Me Too thing was kind of always a mirage in many ways, and it became politicized so quickly that it became useless almost immediately. But it was just a certain moment of wondering, well, maybe they're on to something. Maybe they can really, really make the dial change. And I think, you know, yeah, a lot of bad guys were caught. A lot of good guys were probably were criminated for things that they didn't do at all. So maybe this is the corrective moment to me too, but sort of a sad one, I think. But I think I, I just, I'm worried that liberals will draw the wrong lesson here. So it's been widely claimed that there's something about our political process here that reveals that both race and gender still are incredibly significant. And if you're black, you're not going to become president, even though we've already had a black president. Just leave that aside. 
you know, like Cory Booker and, you know, Kamala Harris, and, you know, they just, they weren't going to win because they're black. And if you're a woman, you know, if you're Elizabeth Warren, your being a woman is such a strike against you that you're not going to win. But I don't actually believe that. And, and the reason why I don't no, is that do I. If, if I imagine Michelle Obama having run, mm. I think she would have walked away with it. I think she would have, oh, I, yeah. think, I think she would have been 100% sure to have been the nominee. And I think she would just walk away with the election. And so it just, it matters who a person is. It matters whether a person, I mean, the, the thing that, it, that shouldn't matter, but unfortunately really does, is charisma. Right? I know, you know? I know. I mean, fuck, talk about privilege, right? <laughs> you know, you, you, to be able to get in front of a camera and, yeah. and look natural and happy and like you have your shit together and to mm -hmm. speak in complete sentences and to be someone who has a, a, some kind of star power, it's an enormous advantage. And, and, and Michelle obviously has it in triplicate. And it's, yeah, I just think if we could run that counterfactual, there's, there's some universe in which Michelle Obama just mm. wins in a landslide. And I, I think that, that would be a true reading of our situation. Yeah. But I know that she, who can blame her? Oh, that, no. That, yeah, of course. Yeah. Who can blame her? Did you see the Netflix documentary that she's made? No. About? No, actually, oh. I didn't yet. Yeah, what it's just there's just some people in life that just they're just extraordinary people. You just can't even imagine yourself on any kind of level with them. She's just an incredible story, an incredible person. Uh, okay, so finally, Caitlin, uh, there was one mm. more, one more tweet that brought out one of your better sides. You have many sides that, that mm. are each better than the next, but you happen to notice. I don't know how you noticed this, but the AP Style Book has oh. claimed that. Uh, oh, here's the tweet. We now say not to use the archaic and sexist term mistress for a woman in a long-term sexual relationship with and financially supported by a man who is married to someone else. Instead, use an alternative like companion or lover on first reference. Provide details later. There was something re really uh, delicious about this. What was I forget what your response was, but how do you view this guidance from the, um, the powers that be at the AP? Well, so here's what they're thinking to them, let alone I would really challenge them on their concept of, of whether this term is archaic and whether or not we should eliminate terms that are in fact archaic from the English language, right. because that might be, leave us with very few words. But so the idea is that, boy, this is really anti-woman and anti-sexual power of women. And to call her a mistress when she's having sex with this married man and maybe being financially supported by him. That makes it seem as though it's not good to have sex with a married man. Right. Or and it empowering. makes it right. Or a so, sign of your sign of your power. Exactly. So what we need to do is find another word that won't be stigmatizing. So we can use companion. Yeah, far, far down, you can see that, that, that I mean, certainly not the first two or three definitions you think of for companion. That's, <laughs> if, you want it, if you want a stilted old-fashioned word, right. companion was often what they said about a gay man's lover that lived with him. His companion came. So it could be extremely confusing or completely meaningless to use such a word. I'm surprised partner didn't get in. I know. Mind, well, but... they knew that that would just. But so here's the thing, two parts to it. 
So it's kind of a feminist implication here. Hey, this woman, like she has sex and she gets money and that's empowering because, you know, all these other reasons, I won't even go into them. But what she's doing is the least feminist thing in the world, which is that she is making another woman's finances worse because the woman thinks she's married and that they have shared finances and some of that money is being drained off that she doesn't know about. She's harming that woman's marriage. She's making that woman's children's life all that much more unstable financially mm. and emotionally. And she's a witch, you know? So you can give her another name and then that name will be stigmatized. Mm. You know, you can call her the Virgin Mary. That can be the new name and that will be stigmatized because what she's yeah, doing- the, the situation is, it deserves contains its be, own stigma, yeah. Exactly. It deserves to be held out to the community for the sake of other women called married women and for the sake of their children, it needs to be, it's going to always be, unless we decide to totally crash and burn as a, as a society, it needs to be something we look down upon. And mistress is not going to be getting rid of that word won't change the way we feel about that thing. And it just goes to show that a style book, which is what, you know, every magazine, every newspaper, they have their house style and high school students might be given MLA style. It's just the way, the formal way that we've agreed to communicate with one another formally. And the goal of language is to communicate. The more and more and more precise the words you use, the more and more and more clearly you're communicating. And everybody hates it when they can tell someone is just having them on by using a bunch of jargon. And so the AP style book, to say that it's part of how style within the Associated Press to speak in an obfuscation is, is just, it's just folly. It's, I won't say it's Orwellian because everybody just sort of throws around doublespeak without really understanding it, but it's pretty close to it, I guess, in sort of taking the language, the English language, and trying to contort just the words, but not the things the words signify into a different meaning. Yeah. Yeah. I've always been surprised to encounter in certain cases, I, I guess this has to be more on the left politically than on the right, but a total lack of judgment about the unmarried person having an affair with the married person, the, the, the lack of judgment with respect to the unmarried person. Mm -hmm. They're just prosecuting their own emotional and, and sexual adventures within the normal bounds of private ethics and not it's often just not remarked that they're being callous with respect to this this other situation which is on the, which is in the, the married life of this person i mean obviously the person who's married is is even more culpable for that but the fact that the person who you know in this case he is cheating with bears no responsibility for kindling and maintaining a, a relationship with somebody who's married, uh, and therefore victimize, you know, therefore making the, the the family life even more precarious, it just it totally warrants an ethical concern and judgment here, and it, it's stigmatized for for obvious reasons. Well, the thing about affairs is that, well, first place, the truism remains incredibly consistent that women having affairs with married men have a high degree of believing the man's going to leave 
his family for her. And he tends to say it a lot. Mm. And it is very, very rare, comparatively, for a man to leave his wife and family for a mistress than it is for a woman. You know, Anna Karenina was right for a reason. It's mm. very, very rare for the married man. He, like, he's got, his, he's got his life. He's got his world. He's got his kids. You know, he's not going to know when Johnny has an orthodontist appointment. But even if his wife is super high powered, she knows that because that's kind of how women are around their children. They're very, very, very clued into the. I always say that men, even the most happening men, they really know like the one subway trip on the map to like take a kid to. And the woman knows the entire subway system and which trains are late. She's on top of absolutely everything. But the thing that empowered women additionally was in the 70s feminism, really hardcore feminism, didn't have respect for marriage. And they said as much, and they thought mm. marriage was part of the whole patriarchal system. And there was a real glee at worst, and certainly no stigma at all about sleeping with a married man. There was the sense that the only other woman you were hurting was one of these ding-dong housewives who needed to mm. get the word anyway. That's fascinating. So, so this is something that I, I have just grokked from the culture without knowing any of that. And it's interesting to hear it put that way. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a movement that has done so many wonderful things for the world, but that in America has become, it has caused a lot of problems for women and for men and for children. So people always say, your feminism is in question. I always say, I'm not a feminist because words, just as we're learning with mistress, you know, the English language evolves, words become deracinated. And the dic current dictionary definition of feminism is so far away from the way many women act and decry themselves feminists that I, I don't really know what it means anymore. And I don't really feel any allegiance to that term. So perhaps we can end on this. What, what do you mean when you say you're not a feminist to, I would say, most people's ears that will signal some affinity, I, I, I have to think, to the, you know, the Phyllis Schlafly side of the argument against feminism. Phil Schlafly, who came out against the ERA, right? Who just who thought that was a an assault upon you know traditional values and and uh, you know, every woman's true station in life, which is to be a homemaker. How would you want your disavowal of feminism characterized? I mean, what is it that you hope is true of the world in the future? That the, in terms of political goals or the the realization of a, a truly healthy set of norms around gender roles. What's the other position here? Well, the minute you put gender roles in, now it's... So for me, the political, social, and economic freedom of women is a hugely important thing that's, that's in my life and that's in everyone's lives. I should be. Every woman's life should be. But when you start saying it's feminist to teach women not just to have a job when their kids are small, but to lean into it. And that's an ultimate feminist aspiration for women to lean into their jobs, but not perhaps to lean into their homes or their children's lives. Then, then that feminism to me is very suspect, that use of the term. When you say that young women shouldn't just have the freedom to be sexually active without stigma, but that they should be having a sex life that is much like what the imagined male sex life would be like. And when they end up miserable and when they end up with like the only way they can understand 
what happened that night before is to see it as a, a episode of non-consensual sex when it wasn't that. It was an episode of agreeing to something horrible that you didn't really come to terms with till the next day that so many damaging things are now being told to young women in the name of feminism, which they know feminism is important, that I find that I, I would much, much rather say I really believe in equality mm. between or among the sexes than I can say feminist because it's just, as I say, the meaning has become, it's English language evolves, the AP style book is teaching us that, and the term has gotten farther and farther and farther from what you would find in a dictionary for its definition. The dictionary does not say that the logical conclusion of political, social, and economic for freedom for women is that they should go and free their nips and walk yeah. around, be able to walk into the company barbecue with their top off and assume that no one was going to look twice at them. That's just absurd. It's a mm. whole bunch of, it's not just absurd in a fun kind of Dada-esque way, and then I'd be all for it, mm. but it's absurd in a way that gets into the groundwater of what is really actually feminism and then poisons generations of young women who instead of developing close, intimate, romantic, personal, sexual relationships when they're young with one man and maybe then another man, preparing themselves for the intimacy and love of the permanent relationship, a feminism that just says all of that is irrelevant and stupid and forget it and it's holding you back and introduces something that is truly poisonous in the lives of these young women. I don't, I don't want to be, I have to find a new term for, that, for what mm. I stand for because it's not those things. Right, yeah. But the, the problem with the term is that it, it seems to be selecting for, I mean, the people who would define themselves by it now without any caveat, it seems to be selecting for people who would unthinkingly take the, the good doctor's side of that Twitter skirmish, right? And just mm -hmm. to, like this is, there's so much moral confusion that is now getting amplified by the ideology of the far left and feminism has become one strand of it that it's, there's just so much to disentangle there to get back to some solid politics and, and solid ethics. Exactly. Yeah. Now, yeah. put me in an argument with somebody who's a strong, a truly anti-feminist of, you know, yeah. against the political equality of women yeah. or whatever. Then you're a feminist. Yeah. Then I will definitely suit up, you know, yeah. just as I'll suit up for Joe Biden. But I don't think it's become a word that signifies what it once signified. Hmm. Well, Caitlin, as always, it's so great to talk to you. And thank uh, you for having me. Good luck uh, weathering what remains of this pandemic. I, I think we're. Oh, I thought you were going to say my remaining years of life. No. Oh, yes. Well, <laughs> I, I know how assiduously you will purge those years of racism and anti-feminism, and, and uh, we, we're all hoping for that. I'm not a prophet, but I will predict with a high order of confidence that our next podcast will still be under lockdown, and uh, I look forward to it. Very good. Thanks, Sam.